We're talking about this interface of what we would usually refer to as mind and heart. Now, if you reflect just on a single day today, you will probably really have a sense of how these mental states pass through consciousness like weather patterns. So we're talking about actually the shape of the mind, the mood, uh, the landscape of the mind, not so much the content when we speak about chitta, but the actual landscape, the climate of the mind, and how much of that is often so changeable in a single sitting, in a single walking, in a single day. Now, many of these kind of emotional states, mental states, some of them just make brief visits, don't they? We have a little moment of of aversion, or we have a little moment of impatience, we have a little moment of, of metta. And some of them, of course, really feel much more familiar to us. The kind of emotional states, mental states that seem to be very, very interwoven with our whole view of self. In fact, often if we were to write a short autobiography, beginning with the words, I am, we would often describe ourselves by some of these very, very familiar moods, mental states or emotional states. We'll say, you know, I'm an angry person. You know, I'm an anxious person, or I'm a, I'm a sad person. Now, what is important to really get a sense of as we contemplate chitta is we're not just talking about the difficult and the troublesome and the, the problematic moods or mental states. So when we talk about chitta, we're actually uh, really also talking about the spectrum the spectrum of moods, the spectrum of emotional states and mental states we can experience. And many of these are actually quite lovely. Spaciousness, calmness, stillness, receptivity, generosity, empathy, kindness, appreciation. And many times these are actually come quite, they can come quite unexpectedly these moods, mental states, emotional states. But also, if you really look at the teaching, you really see how much of the teaching is actually dedicated to the cultivation of that which is lovely. The states of mind, the moods, the mental states, which really contribute to our well-being, contribute to a sense of inner freedom. Certainly in the sense of the Buddhist teaching, the, the loveliness of these moods or emotional states do not need to be accidental. They are conscious cultivations, and in truth, the conscious cultivation of the lovely is very often what allows for the relinquishment and the release of that which is difficult. And there are difficult mental states. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that. You know, there are difficult moods. There are really uh, emotional states which are extremely difficult to accommodate that can feel overwhelming. Some of these were already spoken about earlier on in the retreat in the, in the shape of the hindrance factors. 
but think, you know, we could spend a long time here this afternoon <laughs> drawing up the list of the unhelpful moods or the unhelpful emotional stage. You know, irritation, impatience, frustration, jealousy, fear, anxiety, uh, aversion. It kind of goes on and on. And although the list can seem very long, if you kind of distill the difficult emotional states uh, you can see often there are different manifestations of aversion. There are different manifestations of craving or non-acceptance. So whether lovely or unlovely, moods, mental states have a profound effect. In fact, they very frequently, when unseen, become our world. There's a piece from a German philosopher He says, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. And of course, in this particular quote, you know, something that I would just want to raise is, of course, what is centralized here is I am doing this. If we look at this from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, the language is actually different where the Buddha would say all experiences led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. With our thoughts we make the world, and all that we are arises with our thoughts. So the Buddha put tremendous emphasis upon really understanding the very pivotal role that mental states play in the construction of our world of the moment. And those constructions can change so many times in a single hour. First of all, it is so, so essential just to acknowledge that there is always a mental state present. There is always an emotional state or a mood present. There is not a moment in our day when that is not occurring. Very often those moods, those emotional states are present in our dreams, so it's not as if this is a kind of abstract contemplation you know, or an abstract reflection we only need to turn our attention inwardly right now for just a moment and ask what is the state of my mind does it feel spacious right now does my mind feel contracted right now does it feel dull does it feel bright Does the mind-heart feel agitated? Does it feel calm, grounded? Being able to sustain that contemplation and that reflection is a very large piece of understanding of how our world is actually being shaped, how our sense of self is being shaped moment to moment, and indeed how the sense of the other is being shaped moment to moment. 
Now, when the Buddha spoke about mental states and moods, he he didn't put them into these categories of right and wrong and good and bad, but much more in the reflection I've seen for ourselves. What is it that leads to distress being created and recreated and perpetuated moment to moment? And what are the states of mind, the emotional states, climates, that are truly leading to the end of distress, to really liberating the heart-mind of the moment. So what is it that happens with our moods, with our mental states? Well, we perceive the world through their lens, through the eyes of our mood of the moment. We interpret the world through how we are perceiving it. And then we react to the world, both behaviorally and inwardly, to those interpretations. Countless examples of this. You know, if we're in a very agitated state of mind, you know, we will look at the world, we will probably see everything that is agitated, we might see everything that we need to be anxious about. Our day might be full of lists of all the things that we have to do. We might find an unholy fascination with the notice board. You know, we might find it manifesting in the body, you know, the, the kind of agitation, the restlessness. It might very well affect our behavior. You know, I'm, I'm not sitting today, you know, it's like, forget it, you know, I need to go for a run, you know, I'm out of here. The store looks very interesting. I mean, you can see if the mood is very aversive. You know, we generally don't see the world with eyes of kindness and patience and forgiveness. We see everything that is imperfect, both outwardly and inwardly. You might walk down the hall or go into your work period, and you might smile at your your fellow yogi, and the smile doesn't get returned, and you can feel the aversion uh, interpreting that. Oh, well, they're not a very kind person, you know, or I'm very unlovable. You know, then that gets behavioral. It's the last smile they'll ever get from me. You know, another moment, the mood could be entirely different and we walk into the dining room, smile at someone, it doesn't get returned. And, and you know, with that mood of kind of calm, kindness and calmness, we think, oh, well, that person's just really needing, you know, really wanting to be very collected right now. You know, that's fine, let them be. Different worlds, different worlds, often same experience, often same sensory contact, but the creation of a different world about it. You might go for a walk and see a small creature that's been killed on the road, you know, and if the mood is very anxious, it would be, you know, I really need to look out for cars, you know, maybe I shouldn't go for walks on the road anymore. You know, we can walk down the road and see a creature killed on the road and actually, you know, have an uh, immense uh, response of compassion. Different mind states... Different, different interpretation of the world that we are in. Now, we notice actually that the difficult mind states, or what we would call the more unskillful mind states, tend to be much more productive of thinking. The more skillful, helpful moods tend to be far less generators of major psychological storms 
you know, if we have a mood of, of anxiety, if we have a mood of unease or aversion, think of the stories that come from that. You know, why am I like this? I'm always like this. You know, what is it telling me about myself? What is it telling me about the world? I need to do this about it. Now, notice if there's a mood of calmness or spaciousness. Often the, the, the productivity of that is far lighter, isn't it? We don't necessarily sit there and ponder, you know, I wonder why I'm calm. I'm not a calm person, you know. Maybe I'm becoming a calm person, you know. I wonder what I should do with this calmness, you know. Maybe, maybe my retreat's done, you know. I got the calmness, you know. I can go home now, you know. So notice that the calmness does not generate that big story. Only if the calmness is overtaken by a different mood, say, of doubt or confusion, Okay. So what we actually see is that our mental states produce thoughts, images that are colored by the prevailing emotional state. Anger doesn't usually have thoughts of kindness, contentment, doesn't usually think about what is missing. Now, this is actually not so difficult to see. What is actually more challenging is the credibility that is given to the moods and the thoughts. You know, how they create a kind of amnesia. You know, like if I'm very agitated, I don't even remember a moment when I wasn't agitated. You know, I'm pretty convinced this is my eternal future as a yogi. Mm-hmm. When I'm very, very aversive, I don't remember, actually, my own capacity for kindness. And that kind of amnesia has a lot to do with the effect of identification. Identification gives credibility, it gives authority, both to the mood and to the thought patterns of the moment, and we say, I am, or this is, or you are. Now, it's interesting, because... There's a, there's a quote that says, we believe our mind to be a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting things the way they are, rather than appreciating the centrality that our mind, our emotions place in actually creating the world that we see, in the way that we see it. So there's a kind of closed feedback loop that gets set up with mental states, but this is a closed feedback loop that only actually gets set up with the unhelpful mental states. So, but being aware, it's a two-way street. You know, a single memory can trigger a mood, can't it? I mean, you could be sitting perfectly content, you know, and suddenly a, a, a sound arises that's unpleasant, and the mood of the moment can be changed. You know, you're sitting perfectly content until the lawnmower comes or the jet flies over, and you feel the mood change, you know, the mood of kind of, uh, you know, vulnerability or, or, or aversion. But very often the moods are, as I've mentioned, already very productive, the unskillful, unhelpful moods, productive in terms of producing a lot of narrative. Now, that narrative, when unseen, goes back to strengthen the mood. The stronger the mood, then the bigger the narrative. So this is operating in a kind of closed feedback loop form. Now, something actually also much more toxic or unhelpful gets added to that closed feedback loop because you can see if you go around those loops and often enough, frequently enough, 
how there creeps in there this view of I am. I am the mood and the thought patterns. I am anxious. I am aversive. And as such, that creates this kind of very contracted emotional, psychological world in which there is a centralization of me, but the idea of me in that moment, of course, is not separate from the mood and it's not separate from the thought patterns. Very, you know, so much coming to that very core teaching of the Buddha that says, what we dwell upon frequently becomes the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world and becomes the shape of I am. So this is often what we are asked to truly contemplate. Now, there's a kind of another, um, uh, another formula that, that's put out in the Buddhist teaching to kind of help us to understand this constructing process more clearly. It kind of says, what we contact, we feel. So what our sense doors, including the mind, contacts in terms of sense impression, including thought, and body sensations, what we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about becomes the shape of our mind. Now, this is not some sort of abstract theory or formula. This is something very, very traceable. Again, going back to the sound, you know, sitting, quietude, you hear the rooks. The ear is making contact actually just with the sound. Then there's the perception. Oh, it's the rooks. Now, there are those who don't like the sound of the rooks based on past experience of, you know, rooks devastating their enlightenment moments. So what we contact, we feel, what we feel, we perceive, it's the rooks. And immediately with the perception and the, fe- and, and the, the feeling, we, we feel, I don't want this, this is an interruption. We proliferate about it. I have been asked to move the rook's nests in the past. We proliferate about it. We keep proliferating about it. We come to the next city and we're waiting for the rooks. You know, we're so in that mind state. We're waiting for the rooks to do it. You know, what we proliferate about becomes a shape of our mind, becomes a shape of our world. So something very trackable in a single day. So what do we do with this whole landscape of the third foundation of mindfulness? Well, one thing we learn to do is certainly to develop the emotional literacy around what the mood, what the mental state, what the emotional state of the moment actually is. So it's very important, this quality of knowing. Knowing the mind of the moment. Not without, without any kind of judgmental sense, without any sense of ownership, but ah, this is sadness. Ah, this is agitation. Ah, this is calmness. Ah, this is anxiety. To begin to develop that knowing quality, that, which is a big piece of clear comprehension. I know this mood of the moment. 
This is as it is. This is bringing the mental states into the foreground of mindfulness. You know, there, there's a part of the teaching of the Bodhisattva that says, you know, gives the instruction that whatever you are doing, pause and know the state of your mind. Because that is going to be the forerunner of everything that follows our thoughts and our acts. So first we learn to develop this kind of emotional literacy, the simple knowing. But on the basis of that simple knowing, we bring in the quality of discernment. And it is so important to really see the way that discernment is so highly valued in this teaching and there is something quite different than judgment. Because discernment is what actually engages mindfulness with wise effort. But the discernment quality here is actually really quite simple. It's knowing within the landscape and the spectrum of our moods what is helpful and what is unhelpful. That's simple. What is helpful and what is unhelpful. There's, there's no blame, there's no shame, there's no judgment. Is what is helpful and what is unhelpful. We learn also to pick up the clues of the moods that are operating because often they're quite hidden, you know. Sometimes they're very big shouty moods and mind states, but often they're just quite subtle. So we learn to pick up the clues. Sometimes the clues are in the body. You know, the body of sadness. The body of dullness is a classic one, isn't it? The body of agitation. The body of contractedness. The body of ease. The body of calmness. And when we have a whole vocabulary in English, don't we, developed around describing the impact of moods on the body. You know, I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders. You know, I've got butterflies in my stomach. And we have a whole language that's actually describing because what we actually see is that our mental states are sending messages to the body. And again, this is another closed feedback loop because then the body is sending messages back to the mental state. You know, if you take the, the mental state of dullness as a classic example in that, you know, if I've got the, the, the mental state of dullness, heaviness, you know, and, and then I've got the body of dullness, you know, what is that body of dullness telling me my, telling my mind? Good moment to check out. What is the body of wakefulness telling my mind? So we're learning to pick up on the clues within the body, but we're also learning to pick up on the clues of mental states within the thought patterns themselves. Because the third foundation of mindfulness, some people will put the thought cognitive element in the third foundation, some people will put the cognitive element in the fourth foundation. But clearly moods and thought patterns are very interwoven. So if we go through the day and we find, you know, we have a really a kind of like repetitive, emotionally repetitive thought patterns, you know, grumpiness, you know, uh, you know kind of uh, worry, rehearsing, planning, you know, fantasy, 
those thought patterns are telling us something about the underlying mood that is there. And rather than, you know, struggling endlessly with those thought patterns, it's very often much, much more helpful to be actually to go in and actually really ask, what is the mental state? What is the mood? What is the emotion of the moment? Then there is a question of what is being practiced. Oh, sorry, there's one more part about clues. It's a behavioral one. You know, sometimes it's about looking at what we avoid and what we cling to. You know, if I find, you know, I hear the bell and, and, and I think, oh, no, it's not for me. You know, not, not, not going there, you know, or work period, you know. It, it tells us something about the mood. So the, the next question is, like, what is being practiced? Because there is no mental state, no mood, no emotional state that is self-sustaining. None of them have an independent self-existence. They require being practiced and being fed. So sometimes it's being practiced behaviorally, but more often moods and emotional states are being fed through thought. Through thought. So there's always that, that kind of reflection, I think, in our practice of what actually is being fed in this moment. If we were able to acknowledge that we are, in every moment of our day, not only is, is there a mood, in every, day of our day, every moment of our day we're also practicing something. And sometimes we're practicing and cultivating something very intentionally, very consciously, and if that's not happening it's highly likely that we're practicing habit and that we're practicing impulse. So it's really seeing what is actually sustaining the mood, whether it is behavioral practice uh, or whether it is, believe it or not, in an agitated mood, enchantment with the notice board does not actually answer that agitation. It actually feeds it. Hmm? Not that anybody here is enchanted with the notice board, of course. So what we actually see in our practice is is that much of it is in this word cultivation, cultivating the skillful, bringing into being that which is helpful, that which is liberating, the calmness, the spaciousness, the kindness, the stillness, the generosity, the empathy, because this is what actually does the work of relinquishing and calming the, the moods, the mental states, the emotional states that are unhelpful. And this is a very present moment orientation, is what is being practiced? Does it liberate the moment? Does it awaken the moment? Or does it contract and imprison the moment? Now, uh, don't, uh, the, when I talked about mental states being very prolific, um, you know, many of you are familiar with this Pali word, papancha, and if you're not familiar with it, if you ever learn one Pali word, I would recommend this one, papancha. It actually describes a production of thinking flavored by underlying moods, attitudes, and beliefs that colors and distorts our capacity to see things the way they are. You can see why papancha is simpler. But when we're looking at moods and proliferation, you know, the Buddha basically said, you know, there's five big strands of this kind of, of, of proliferation. 
These are often clues to our underlying moods and attitudes. You know, one of those strands is aversion-based proliferation and thinking. We know this one. You know, the endless rolling train of judgment and blame and shame and, uh, you know, isolating imperfection. It's very productive. The second strand is craving-based papancha. The very big narratives rooted in the mood of discontent, the mood of insufficiency, that is always has a big story about what I don't have, what I need, what I need to be doing, what's missing, what, what I need more of. There is fear, anxiety-based papancha as an emotional tone, emotional mood, which is really much at the root of a lot of the rehearsing, the planning. I mean, this is, by the way, something to be so aware of in interviews, meetings during the retreat, because this is where this one often arises. You know, I'm going to rehearse the perfect interview. You know, and, and I've got all my questions in place, you know, and what I'm going to say. Be so kind to yourself and put that one down. But it's often where you, you only need to see the interview list and you see that anxiety, uh, fear-based papancha going. It's, it's really rooted in, a, in our uh, difficulty in embracing the uncertain, the unknown. There is view-based proliferation. The views we have about other people, the views that we form about Gaia House, the views about Buddhism, you know, the views about the food, the political views, the social views. We could spend a long time in those stories. And the last of these threads is, is what is called mana-based papancha, or the conceit of self papancha. The narratives we have about being better than others or worse than others or the same as others. But, you know, in all of this, basically, the instruction is so similar, you know. Keep coming back to the mood, the climate of mind, the landscape of mind that is triggering all of these very familiar patterns into existence in the moment. And dedicate the practice and dedicate the, the practice actually to liberating the moment from the grip of those repetitive patterns. It doesn't mean they don't arise, of course they arise, but being mindful of that difference between something arising and something being taken hold of as a centralization of me, a view of the world. Uh, an attitude towards all things. Okay, so thank you and uh, enjoy. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.